We continue our journey through the book of James, a very practical book. And today we look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. And I've given the title of my message, The Folly of Favoritism. James chapter 2, and reading verses 1 through 13. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and you say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that we can come and worship you. And we're so grateful for the law of mercy, for the fact that you were willing, Lord Jesus, to, to give your life for us, to sacrifice yourself for us. And if we've experienced your mercy, then, O oh God, we are to show that mercy to those around us without making distinctions between people. O oh God, help us to love all. To welcome all, to embrace people who, who need a Savior, who need Jesus, who died and rose again on our behalf. And so, Father, teach us as we open your word this morning, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a girl who went to a Chinese restaurant in Chicago, and she told the waiter that she wanted an order of chow mein taken out. And she said she wanted a first-class order because it was for a mighty nice chap. Well, the waiter brought it out. The girl took it away. And that's when the trouble started. There was a raging protest from the man who ate the chow mein. He, he said it was like eating liquid fire. He said his face was about to burn off. Well, when the complaint came back to the restaurant, the owner instantly fired the waiter. But when the waiter explained, he got his job right back. 
It appears that when the girl said the chow mein was for a mighty nice chap, the Chinese man thought he, she said it was for a mighty nice Jap. And so he, he put three huge teaspoons full of blazing red peppers in the chow mein. Now, we might um, chuckle a bit about a story like that, but it doesn't illustrate the fact that many of us, if we're to be honest, might struggle a bit with uh, certain kinds of people or other people that are not quite like us. Is there not within us somewhere a little bit of favoritism, maybe, of one group over, over another? James addresses this quite clearly. In verse 1, he says, My brethren, don't hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. He's saying this doesn't fit with being a believer in Jesus, where we kind of separate into different groups, and we like this group, and we don't like that group, and we become... Uh, experience the folly of, of favoritism. And he tells us three things about this when we show personal favoritism. He says the first thing we do is we pass judgment upon people. When we show personal favoritism, we are passing judgment upon other people. And he gives an example of that. He says if a man comes into your assembly and he's got a gold ring and finely dressed and and then there comes another man and he's poor and you just you fall all over the rich man you say here's a wonderful seat right here and then the poor man you say ah you can sit over there or sit at my feet you know he says have you not made distinctions among yourselves and have you not become judges with evil motives what answer is he expecting obvious answer is is yes If we do this, we are passing judgment on other people. James says we are acting like judges with evil motives. The word translated personal favoritism is literally lifting up someone's face. Lifting up someone's face. And it carries the idea of judging by appearance. And on that basis, giving special favor, special respect to someone whom we, who appears to us to be worthy of that, of that respect. Now, one author says it is judging purely on a superficial level without consideration of a person's true merits, abilities, or character. And James says the reason why this is wrong is because it is inconsistent with faith in Jesus. There is only one person we ought to favor, right? There's only one person we ought to exalt. There's only one person that we ought to show special favor to. And it isn't your pastor, even though it's October, Pastor Appreciation Month. It is Jesus, right? Jesus and Him alone is the one who ought to be exalted, who ought to be shown special favor because of who He is. James says He is our glorious Lord. Our glorious Lord. And we all stand under Him on the same level. None of us are greater than anyone else. 
We stand on the same level, all of us under our glorious Lord Jesus. So if you see a bumper sticker, something like this that I saw one time, it's hard to be humble when you're a Norwegian or it's hard to be humble when you're a Swede or it's hard to be humble when you're a German or a Finn. Tell them you got to read the book of James. Okay. There's no distinctions among us, okay? Even though you might be Norwegian or Swede or Finn, whatever it is, we are all on the same level underneath our glorious Lord Jesus. And I find it interesting that James illustrates this in his own life as he writes to these people. Who is James? He was a brother of, of Jesus. He was an apostle. He was a leader in the Jerusalem church. And so he could have identified himself as, hey, you know, I'm writing to you. I'm the brother of Jesus. Just so you know that. Okay. I'm this leader in the Jerusalem church. Just so you know that. How does he identify himself? He identifies himself as a brother of those to whom he is writing. Same family. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, no distinction among themselves. They could be rich, they could be poor, they could be Jew, they could be Gentile. It didn't matter. None of them was greater than another. Isn't this how God treats us today? No matter who we are, He makes no distinctions among us. And the Bible is very clear about that. No matter who we are, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? No matter who we are, we all deserve God's judgment. No matter who we are, Jesus shed His blood for us on the cross. And that's why one man has put it this way, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Do you believe that? The ground is level there for all of us. As we look to Jesus, our glorious Lord and Savior, we don't make distinctions as to rich and poor or thin or Swede or whatever it might be. The church of which Samuel Colgate was a member began to pray earnestly that God would save souls. And so there was a, a lady who, who wanted to join the congregation. And she told of what her life had been that's involved in sin. And then Jesus saved her, changed her life. She had been forgiven, a new creature. And she wanted to join the congregation. The silence was oppressive, we are told. And then a member arose and moved that action be postponed on receiving such a woman as her with such a notoriously sinful past. And so Mr. Colgate arose and he said, I guess we made a blunder when we asked the Lord to save sinners. We did not specify what kind of sinners we wanted the Lord to save. I think we had better all ask God to forgive us for not specifying what kind of sinner we wanted to be saved. He probably didn't understand exactly what we were looking for. Imagine what was going through the minds of that congregation then. R. Kent Hughes tells about a woman who lived on the other side of the tracks, literally. And she wanted to join this very, very fashionable church. 
And so she talked to the pastor about it, and he suggested that she go home and, and think about it for, for a week, you know, whether she really wanted to join that church. And so at the end of the week, she came back. And he said, now, now the pastor said, now let's not act too hastily here. Why don't you go home, read your Bible for an hour every day this week, and then come back and tell me if you think you should join our church. Well, she wasn't too happy about that, but she agreed to do it. And the next week she was back, assuring the pastor she wanted to become a member. And he said, I have one more, one more suggestion. Getting the impression he didn't really want her? <laughs> one more suggestion. Pray every day this week and ask the Lord if he wants you to become a part of this fellowship. So she went and he didn't see her for six months. And he finally met her on the street one day and he asked her what she had decided. She said, I did what you asked me to do. I went home and I prayed. And one day while I was praying, the Lord seemed to say to me, don't worry about getting into that church. I've been trying to get into that church myself for 20 years. <laughs> That's the heart of the issue, isn't it? It really is. If Jesus isn't welcomed into a congregation, then there's going to be other people not welcomed either. But when Jesus is welcomed in a Bible-believing congregation, there's going to be a welcome for others too, right? Because we're all in the same level. We're all sinners saved by grace. There's not different classifications. And so when we have an attitude of personal favoritism, James says we're passing judgment on, on people, making distinctions among us that ought not to be made. Second thing he says, when we show personal favoritism, is there not a sense in which we pass judgment upon God? Think of it. When it comes to our treatment, for example, of the rich and the poor, which James addresses here, who do we tend to favor? We tend to favor the rich, right? Those who have much money are seen as more valuable, they're more important, they're of higher status in this, this world. And there are people that fall for that trap. I was told by someone that their pastor will not preach a sermon on a topic that he knows are going to step on the toes of the wealthy. He won't go there. That's showing personal favoritism, isn't it? Don't want to offend someone who has money because maybe they won't give money to the church. I know of a congregation that had something literally torn out of their new building. I don't know what, something, something on the altar, some, because there was a family, a wealthy family in that congregation that said, we will not give to the purchase of this building unless you tear it out. You know what they did? They tore it out. Sadly, sadly, these are just some of the ways that even people in the church would favor the wealthy. But if you look at what James says in our text, this is just opposite of God's view. God looks at the rich and the poor and quite differently than we do. Notice what he says about the poor. Verse five, he says, listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith 
and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? What's the obvious answer to that? Yes. Yes. God has indeed chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith. And that's not to say that all the poor are rich in faith, right? Some of them are not. But the poor are more likely to realize their need for Jesus because they have less of the things of the world that make people feel self-sufficient. What did Jesus say? How hard it is for the rich man to enter the kingdom, right? Why? Because what do I need? I got it all. I got food. I got wealth. I got everything I want. I don't need God. So most of those who are rich in faith are the poor of this world, recognizing they have a need for Jesus. But James goes on to say in verse 6 that we often take the opposite view. Instead of honoring the ones that God has chosen, we look down on them. We dishonor them. And in so doing, we pass judgment on God. By our behavior, we are telling God that our value system is better than His. So we insult the ones whom God has chosen. How about the rich? Verse 6, he says, Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? What's the obvious answer to that? Yes. Read the book of Acts. That's exactly what happened in the early church. The rich oppressed God's people. They blasphemed God's name. And and this is why James is saying, why do you exalt people like that? And you know what? It's not much different today, is it? Look at the ones whom we honor in our culture. Who do we laud over? The rich and famous, right? The athletes, the actors of this world who are deeply in love with themselves and despise the values that we as believers hold dear. Look at all the money that the rich in our culture are giving to support things like abortion, sexual immorality, persecution of believers in Jesus who want to stand on biblical values. They're the ones that drag believers into court. They're the ones that blaspheme the the name that we love, the name of Jesus. So things haven't changed much since James wrote this letter. The rich still oppress God's people, blaspheme God's name, and and yet people are still impressed and and awed by their, their wealth. James says, that's not the way it ought to be. We show personal favoritism to the rich. James says we're, we're, we're passing judgment upon God. And thirdly, he says when we show personal favoritism, we pass judgment on ourselves. Instead of having an attitude of personal favoritism, James gives us a principle that should govern all of our relationships. In verse 8, he calls it the royal law. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to Scripture, what is it? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the royal law. You shall love 
your neighbor as yourself. So the question is, who's my neighbor, right? Who's my neighbor? Wasn't that the question in the passage read this morning, the Good Samaritan? Who's my neighbor? Well, in the minds of some people, my neighbor is just, you know, my little circle. That's my neighbor. The ones that I get along with, the ones that are like me, the ones that I choose to be my neighbor, but everybody else, no, they're not really not really my neighbor. But James makes it clear in verse 9 that fulfilling the royal law means loving everyone. And if we don't love everyone, what does he say? We stand guilty before God. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But, verse 9 says, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressions, transgressors. In other words, you may show love to those in your little circle of friends, but James says that's not enough. And that's not your neighbor. The law demands that you love all people without any personal favoritism. And that's not easy, is it? There are some people that are hard to love. Let's face it, right? There's some people we would just rather not be around. People that rub us the wrong way. People that just, you know, we see them coming, we want to turn around and walk the other way. That's not loving our neighbor, is it? I think we're all guilty of that to one degree or another, aren't we? Now, James seems to anticipate that some of his readers might say that that's not that big of a deal. Showing favoritism, that's not that big of a deal. After all, if I obey most of God's commands, he'll accept me. After all, no one's perfect, right? I mean, that's our excuse. Everybody sins. No, one, no one's perfect. But look at verse 10. He says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, what's the conclusion? He has become... Guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So if I had a balloon in my hands this morning, how many pinholes would it take to pop that balloon? How many would say ten? Smart audience. Let me say five. How many say two? How many say one? One. So where does that place us? There are people who say, you know, if the good outweighs the bad, God will accept me, right? I might lie and cheat and have evil thoughts, but I, I help old ladies across the street and I, you know, I give my neighbor some soup and, you know, there, there's, there's, no, there's no scales. We, we stand, all of us, we stand guilty before God. We are convicted 
by the law as transgressors. Every one of us. Me included. That's why we need a Savior, right? And that's why we find encouragement in this text that is filled with law. (laughs) Pointing out our, our sin, we find this encouragement in verse 12 where he says, So speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Now, that's an interesting expression, isn't it? The law of liberty. What is James saying? He's saying that the law of liberty becomes the standard by which I live in relationship to others. If God accepts me as I am, then I ought to accept others as well. The law of liberty... I think we could say that that's another way of describing the gospel. It's not a law in the sense that it condemns. It's, it's a principle. It's, it's the fact that, that in Jesus we are free, right? There is no condemnation to those in Christ. We are set free from the penalty of our sin because Jesus paid the penalty for us. He took our sins to the cross. God accepts us then because of Jesus... That's why we call the gospel the good news, right? My guilt because of my sin has been paid for by Jesus. So how does that affect the way I live then? James says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, the gospel. So if I've been forgiven, I need to forgive, right? If I've been loved by God, I need to love one another. It all flows from the good news. It flows from the gospel. That's where the power comes from to live that way, right? It doesn't come in our own flesh. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Shortly after World War II, There was a Christian college that held a retreat in the mountains of California. And among those who attended was a pilot who served in Hitler's Luftwaffe, a man who had flown for Japan, and a former U.S. Air Force pilot who had bombed Germany. Now, would you suppose that these guys would be buddy-buddy after what we know happened in World War II? Well, all three of them came to that conference. None of them knew the Lord. But all three of them came to really put their trust in Jesus. And the one who was leading that conference encouraged them to take a stick, to toss it into the fire as a gesture of their willingness to give their lives to burn for Jesus. (laughs) And that's what all three of them did. The German pilot was the first one to do so, followed by the Japanese and then the American. And with tear-filled eyes, these former enemies stood with their arms around each other, blended their voices with the others, singing, Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. It would have been easy for these men considering their past, to have disdain for one another. But God did a wonderful work of His grace 
in their lives. And that changed the way that they saw each other. Only Jesus can do that, right? Only Jesus can do that. He unites Jew and Gentile. He unites rich and poor. He gives us a love for others who might not quite be like us because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Aren't you thankful for that today? The ground is level at the foot of the cross. No matter who we are, no matter what we've done, we come in repentance and trust in Jesus. We're embraced by Him. And therefore, we can embrace one another. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your mercy to us, Your grace to us at the cross, what You did for us there to take our punishment to suffer in our place because we stand convicted as transgressors of your law. But you forgive us and you cleanse us. And you make us a part of your family. And therefore, Lord, we are to treat one another the royal law, loving our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, do that work in us today. Enable us by your grace to love one another even as you have loved us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.